Hey, Vanessa. How goes it? Well, I just heard that it seems that maybe Iran tried to launch a missile at the Israeli nuclear reactor <laughs> weeks after Israel attacked the Iranian nuclear reactor and in between where uh, uh, Iran and China made some sort of defense agreement. So we are, I guess, I guess we're heading towards World War III. So. Oh. That's great. Lovely little, little little nugget of World information. World War Three, this time with more nukes. <laughs> this time with more. You mean like detonated or just more more in the in the in the wings? In the mix. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> who's <laughs> who's to say? Like say like it depends on how you play your cards tonight. Luckily, we do not talk about uh, geopolitics this time. <laughs> we don't. This time, we talk about racial justice. So that's that's fun. Mm-hmm. Racial justice, racial trauma, racial everything. <laughs> I mean, and it's not just racial. I guess trauma. Yeah. Trauma is really the category that yeah. we discuss. So we brought back our our friend Misha Thomas, and this time we intended to bring him back in his capacity as team psychologist, and we wanted to discuss one of his pet issues, which is trauma. And trauma is such an overloaded term with such a complicated role in our current discourse. It came up in an interesting way during our conversation with Caitlin Flanagan, and it's something that we certainly talk a lot about behind the scenes because we we understand the the importance of dealing with trauma on a personal level, obviously, psychologically, but also on a societal level, Mm -hmm. but also quite wary of the overuse and creep of the phrase and the trivialization of, of, of our trauma discourse. I guess I guess everything gets trivialized in the way we talk about things Mm -hmm. publicly these days. And trauma is just one of those uh, uh, verbal victims. But we want to bring Misha to talk about this because we knew that he had a lot to say, and he he wrote about this previously, and, and and it's one of the themes that he has been developing in his work to think about delineating trauma accurately and and understanding it, but also giving it the right place in our in our social understanding and emotional retention. But well, I mean, we did get to talk about this, I guess, in the end. But rather than having the I don't know, intellectual, um, which one is the right brain and which is the left brain? I always always get that wrong. (laughs) I always get that wrong too. I I am. We must be left brain? I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) Googling it as we speak. (laughs) Yet another uncertainty. Oh, welcome to Uncertain Things. Oh yes, the podcast. Yep, that's what you're listening to right now. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on (laughs) uncertain.sopsec.com. Do the things while I conduct this live fact check. Instagram, Twitter, all the all the places. I, I've been having fun on Instagram, actually. Yes. No, nobody cares because I don't think our audience is is an Instagram audience. I mean, I definitely don't find podcasts on Instagram, but God bless right. you if you do. <laughs> right. I don't either, but but I really hate Twitter because Twitter is the bane of the human condition and is is basically the thing that's gonna bring down. Civilization. Civilization, basically. Yeah, that and the nukes in Iran. Yeah. <laughs> it will start on Twitter. It'll start on Twitter. One day, people will just be doing their things on Twitter, and then somebody will respond, shots fired, and it will actually be the Franz Ferdinand shot starting World War Three. 
Anyway, I, I, I got lost there. You, it must be your right so, yeah. brain? <laughs> Left brain. Ah, that was, I was right the first time. <laughs> so we were expecting to do our left brain conversation with Misha, but it ended up being a lot more personal than, than planned and much more emotional and right brainy. And for a, lot, for a big part of it, it was actually Misha taking us along on his own, uh, I, hate, I hate saying journey, but journey. And his relationship with his, um, with his own blackness is growing up in the 70s, 80s as a black kid in Rust Belt, America. If you remember our previous conversations with him, his perspective on race and the attitude towards race in this country is unique and at times provocative. And as we can see, it's also evolving. And it's something that we've argued at length about on the podcast and off air. Right. Our previous conversation with Misha was the one titled uh, The Liberal Who Voted for Trump, which kicked up a lot of, you know, <laughs> ire amongst certain listeners. But I, I would say that those people, most those ones who were most full of ire, you should definitely listen to this episode. I think it is a really interesting follow up and, and contextualizes a lot of that previous conversation in a way that I wasn't expecting. Me neither. And it's, it, it, yeah, so he is the eponymous liberal who voted for Trump. And indeed, the, the responses we got, I, I don't remember our podcast getting as much hate mail <laughs> as, I mean, the only other time was when we, was one of our interviews really had like, like a shitty audio recording, which, which does happen. <laughs> <laughs> so we did, we did get some. Deserved. <laughs> critiques but aside for that that was like it really generated a lot of emotional responses i again i especially to those people i think worthwhile hearing what this what this wonderful man thinks about 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 his own place and 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 in in this in, in this racialized conversation and you know it's coming now um, yeah. like literally a day after um, or maybe like two days, depending on when I'm um, going to release this, after the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah, the verdict. Yeah, the verdict. The media coverage around the trial. <laughs> Jesus. Now I can do my shtick easily of pointing out just how bad everyone was on, on, across the political spectrum. The right complains a lot about how irresponsible the, the the liberal media covers events like this, and I think they're absolutely right. But in this case, the irresponsibility on the right has been absolutely atrocious. It's like, I don't know if you, I mean, I'm assuming you haven't been paying attention to right-wing media, but the <laughs> coverage no. of the Chauvin trial, you know, if you really feel a need, you can, by all means, get, you know, into the quibbles of, did the prosecution satisfy each and every element of each and every count, you know, go ahead, debate it, and enjoy your litigious masturbation. But the bottom line is that the prosecution made a strong case, the defense had a weak case, and any reasonable juror could have reached the decision mm -hmm. on their own judgment to convict on all charges. And to imply otherwise is not only, you know, disingenuous and has an element of race baiting, it is also just so fundamentally irresponsible as, yeah. as in, in terms of sowing doubt in, in, in the legal system, right. especially from the side that pretends to be in defense of the status quo and the American democracy and all of that. To hear them right. 
talk so condescendingly about the decision of the 12 jurors as if they couldn't have possibly made a rational conclusion without the mm-hmm. um, external influences of the liberal media is, is deranged, sick, and makes me angry. And I, 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 that, I, I, just, I don't know why I felt the need to enter that into mm-hmm. our intro, but, but it's, it's raw in my mind. And, well, and it's, I guess, and it's I- just weird to go into the Misha conversation without at least Acknowledging mentioning it. it. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it's we've been in a very raw moment for this country for for months now. And I think this is, you know, one punctuation of these like waves of emotion that this country has been experiencing. It would be weird not to acknowledge it. And I think that this conversation actually is, you know, weird. We did not time it to come out around now, but um, like on purpose. But I think it it's a really, what I would say about this conversation is that it's, I found it like re-listening to it, you know, as we were editing, it, it's really unique, I think. And it's really honest and it's really kind of fumbling in a good way. Like we're all kind of trying, well, it, it, it's really, it really centers like Misha and his journey and his experience of his blackness and being black in America, but it's also a dialogue between the three of us. And we're all kind of trying to find the right words and the right way to vocalize what is both intellectual and rational and at the same time, deeply emotional. And I guess inherent in that, I should say, you know, trigger warning, there's a lot of really deep, intense stuff in this conversation um, that may may be too much for for some people potentially. But I think for those who are are looking for a conversation where three people who love and trust each other are going to grapple with really hard, intense themes for us personally and as well as like on a societal level for this country. Um, I think this conversation is actually really, really worthwhile. And I'm really grateful that <laughs> Misha came on and, and was like, was willing to go there with us. Though, if I'm honest, I, I would assume, I mean, I don't know, but um, I assume that the people listening to this podcast are, are, are not exactly the people who are, who are triggered. I mean, we, we Probably, just had an episode, but we just had an episode where, where that concluded on, on a, a Holocaust joke fest. So <laughs> I, I feel, and that was one of our most listened to, I think, episodes. So I, 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 I don't know what it means in terms of, of what you're looking for. I, I hope mean, it, it doesn't mean that you're all neo-Nazis. I, I think, I assume you're not. <laughs> that would uh, but yeah, but but I do, but we, I, we do know that a lot of our listeners are like multipartisan, and yeah. I do I, I do think this is an interesting conversation, or or at least in how we are actively trying to push against the the, the political narratives that try to constrain when somebody is, is is trying to express a personal story and a personal understanding of um, a very politicized experience. It's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult not to fall into the molds that the conversation forces you into yeah and and misha just by his nature defies those molds i mean i think the only trigger warning that that needs to be said is for people who are who, who do come to us for the hyper left brain conversation and again we did do a lot of our over over thinking and overwording <laughs> the experience but but it definitely is a lot more emotional than 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 average and you know i guess that's what happens when every once in a while when we, we when we bring a friend we just can't help but be um totally out there hyper rational uh, people have hearts too they can they are they contain more than just a brain they can bending <laughs> one last thing is that at least from my perspective one of the thing that was deeply important to me to set up that was leading me into the conversation and throughout was was the need desire to to dispel 
the this false and noxious belief that you know just because something is subjective and just because something hinges on a personal experience then just by virtue of that it shouldn't be interrogated mm-hmm. and and this fallacy is and again excuse me for being repeatedly harsh on america but it is especially prominent in america in americans you know the the right likes to mock the left for this tendency but i think it's equally palpable on both sides it is just the inability to accept that emotional experience is valid but is also valid for debate mm-hmm. and, and furthermore this is possibly even more important it's the ugly dangerous idea that the interrogation and questioning and challenging of of an experience is tantamount to dismissal and that's insane to me mm. and that's something that was really important for me to 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 explore which is to be able to question to be able to interrogate and sometimes harshly interrogate but out of empathy and love and and to acceptance and out of a true desire to understand the other person not out of a desire to diminish them mm-hmm. misha is an outstanding friend in in allowing me to to try that and i think you know he shares my my thoughts about this and he also strongly believes in the importance of a dialectic to yeah. create to create more empathy and to create more understanding and not not just as a as a combative tool but that that you know verbal combat and that critical thinking is part of the deal when you really want to understand the other person and not just applaud and pander mm-hmm. but actually understand so yeah, so that, that was my, my little uh, spiel. Yeah, that, that's what, where I was coming from. Um, and uh, yeah, we already expect the hate mail. So um, You think on this one? The hate mail? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand people. I know. I think not. Let's see. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what, how humanity <laughs> Let, let's, disappoints let's see what... us or not. How much. <laughs> and with that, Misha, Misha Thomas. Hello. Hey, good evening. (laughs) Good evening. Happy springtime. I know. It's still sunny and it's 6.08. Such a pleasant change from before. It's a metaphorical of something. We wanted to talk to you for for some time since our previous dramatic conversation, (laughs) the epic, what was it, five hour long? Oh my goodness. Yes. Election talk. Um, I (laughs) I got a lot of, I mean, I think it's one of the conversations I got the most comments about both from our immediate friend circles and total strangers who who had feelings to share (laughs) i got texts like i'm so mad i'm so angry people were it it brought up emotion oh yeah we didn't realize that it it needed to come with a trigger warning it was (laughs) i mean i guess we we needed a trigger warning ourselves (laughs) vanessa and i coming into the conversation but um but it was it was a really interesting set of responses because people really didn't know how to digest it and it was still a month before the actual elections Mm -hmm. so emotions were you know insane people were losing it people were tearing their hairs off (laughs) and and then you come in with your blithely vote and just people just didn't know what to do and the, the the funnier thing i think that i should mention is that some of the 
most energized, happy, giddy comments came from, unsurprisingly, Trump voters who <laughs> listened to it and were like, yes, we got them. We got them. We clinched the black vote as it. <laughs> yes. So I guess my first question is how, how, does, how did it feel since you did get some of the uh, uh, backlash and the, uh, you taste the, the, the drops of splash that you caused? How does it feel to be a symbol, Misha? How does it feel to be an av- avatar for something? Wow, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to take that in to know if is it true? Is that true that I'm those things? Um, you know, I know because nobody is an avatar. I'll but. tell you, I had uh, a couple friends of mine, these are like you know, old friends from high school, and I was on the phone with one of them, you know, major, major Trump supporter, and he was really fascinated to, and I'm quoting him here, actually hear liberals talking. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was so interesting. Like, that's like real liberals. <laughs> so it's kind of, so that was- I don't Right, know. we were the avatars and that's in that, yeah, from right. that person's point of view, yeah. But you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, it might be my favorite thing about your whole platform and that you call it, you know, uncertain things, because just that brand gives me, I suppose, gives all your guests permission to be uncertain about things where you Mm -hmm. can really try things out. You know, it's like by definition, we don't have to be overly worried about fully representing some final point on anything. It's just, so I just, I don't know. I find myself um, open to doing the kind of exploring and sort of trying things out, taking risk. So I don't know, I, I reflect on that. So before we move to today's risk, um, which is one of the things that actually brought us to set up this talk, I, I want to spend one more minute on the, the Trump thing. As irrelevant as it seems now, right? Like suddenly, like who cares? The, it's not, I mean, who, who, nobody should have cared before, but certainly nobody should care now. But it was amusing. Nobody should care what, what who Misha voted for. Who Misha voted for? Yes, mm-hmm. but it was funny at the time. I think the, the the piece of the responses that we got that was most amusing to me was all the involved psycho analysis slash sociology that yeah. was involved. We were trying to understand where you're coming from, and I, I think you told me if you about a friend of yours who really disagreed with my interpretation. So like, I, I, they should have brought me on to, oh, to tell yeah. them what's really up with Misha's head. Like, <laughs> can you talk about this for a second? Oh my goodness. I don't know if I want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this was, this was my, um, one of my exes. And he was, you know, I've, I've had a lot of relationships over the years, but this was my longest um, relationship, eight years, Mark. And uh, he said, oh, they should have me on there. I know you. I would have told them why you did this. You know, you, you know, and then he, he, um, the gist of what he was saying in jest, although, you know, I guess it's not completely jest. He's, he referenced this way in which because of my race trauma, I had come to fetishize whiteness. I mean, which is, you know, that's a pretty <laughs> intense thing to say. Um, And he said it in jest? He said it in jest, but I mean, look, this is the kind of jesting or jestful, I don't know what the word is, jestful tone 
that someone who knows you really, really well over yeah. the lifespan, you know, they could get away with saying that the way a sibling could. And mm -hmm. though it was really poignant, I'm able to laugh and say, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mentioned that to Adam and here you are bringing it up. It's a perfect segue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You texted me a couple of weeks ago, I think, with, with a little moment of, I don't know if it's an epiphany or of but your little your third or fourth born again moment i guess as a as a true christian at heart you yeah. undergo a revelation stage every every other cycle in your life <laughs> so you you may have reached a new one or at least a, a, an interesting phase so go ahead yeah i mean i don't know that it's a phase like yeah, that. Yeah, phases, phases, phases seems to be a dismissive. No, word. but I'm, I'm glad you said that because you know what I'm what I'm wanting to say is, in a way, I'm glad that I've had some time to think about it and to experience it a little more fully because I embrace things. You know, I mean, if you know me, you know, I embrace things in a way where I, you know, I take things on as a phase, you know what I mean? I like projects, I like new initiatives, and I take it on really a whole hog. Like I, I become that thing for the time. And it's not like I, it's, you know, someone can say, well, you know, you get bored with a project and then you move on. But I think part of what it is, that's how I come to learn things. That's how I come to, you know, like I really embody it. I think about my background as an actor, like, you know, it's as if I'm, into the characterization. I'm walking around as the character. I'm sort of doing research on the character by living and seeing the world from the eyes of that character. And I kind of become it. And then when I'm done, I leave having learned something from it. Let me just, I'll, I'll just leave it there for now um, and get to what you're talking about. So um, there is, you know, I, I sent you this message after I watched this fabulous documentary on PBS called uh, The Black Church. And it was a documentary that was actually done by a, a friend of mine in the building. You know, she's a documentarian and she produced and directed this amazing film. And after watching it, I contacted you because I just, I felt like, wow, like this, I, did, I had this immersive experience where that was my black background. Like my black Baptist church boyhood was captured in this documentary. And I experienced this kind of visibility about being black that felt, I don't know, it felt, it felt new in the sense of me wanting to be open about it, you know? In other words, like, I was like, oh, I knew, like the stuff that was depicted in that film, I knew it. I was clapping, singing, screaming, laughing during the whole film. But then I realized, oh, this is, it felt like, it felt like one of the first times in my life, if not the first time, where I wanted to celebrate it publicly and not in the closet. That's what I'm struggling to say. And so like, I felt, whatever it was that I sent you, that was, that was kind of the message. Yeah. I mean, and it's kind of, it's kind of intense to hear myself say that. So like, in other words, 
like before the experience of watching that documentary, it's almost like I was a closeted black person, which is weird to say that I know. Mm -hmm. I don't want to overly push this analogy like about being in the closet and coming out, but it did feel that way. And as I reflected on it since, you know, first talking to you, I realized, oh, wow, there really are some patterns here where, you know, you might be wondering, well, in the closet, well, how, how were you being, if not black, you know, otherwise? And I think what one aspect of my childhood was that I felt so busy trying to overcome my fears about being less than whiteness that it was all about whatever I was doing to overcome that. And my black experience was sort of this secret family thing that happened on the weekends because that's when we went to church. We went to church on Sundays and we were immersed in the black community, in the church. And I loved it. It was familiar. It was fun. It was all those things. But then when we came back home to the country in the little small town where, you know, we were just one of a few black families in the neighborhood, it was sort of back to the other world. So that's, you know, those are some of my thoughts about like what was going on in me when I was excited and I sent you this text. Yeah, I, I, I would want to know a little bit more about it, the, the experience of watching the documentary then, because it it's almost less about what was perhaps, and I'm asking this as a question, not as a statement, is it almost as if the, it's not what was in the documentary itself, but it was the fact of a documentary existing yes. and, and marking this as worth preserving and something to celebrate and preserve? That yes. is that the thing that kind of, clicked in you it's like oh yes my history my past is something worth celebrating and preserving yes you know and there let me just go back and say you know these conversations i have with you they are they are tough but what i really appreciate about it is like i do feel safe taking the risk i don't know but i do i just want to say it is a risk i'm happy to take it but it's like whoa these are like you know Mm -hmm. it's, it's intense thinking about this and also, Misha, if there's anything that you say that in retrospect you're not comfortable with, we always can edit it out. No, of course. Yeah, that's my I can't help but wanting to push back. But why do you think it's a risk? It's a, OK. That's what I'm going to say in the next sentence. What feels risky about what I'm about to say now is I'm a because I, look, I'm committed to telling the truth. But the truth is not going to be that glowing because it's not ideal. It's honest. And mm-hmm. I think it's worth hearing the truth. So, for example, part of what makes what Vanessa say, what she says is true, is part of it is the timing. Like my assumption is we've reached a point in American history where um, it seems to me people, like white people, white people are or non-Black people are interested in Black history. They're interested in looking at a documentary like this as something that is worthy of being considered as part of the American cultural experience that is interesting, that is valid, that is powerful, that is worth studying. That was not my internalized assumption growing up. My internalized assumption growing up was that almost as if I had to hide Blackness so that I could prove some type of equality or superiority to the whiteness that that otherwise felt overwhelming to blackness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
I'm no, I, I, I wanted to explain that further. I mean, I understand the basic premise because I understand what the the need to repress difference in um, within a majoritarian society is. I understand. I can relate to it. I I recognize it. But what do you mean exactly when you say, "What was your what was your phrase that that you needed to prove?" some sort of aptitude where where did you feel in what way did you feel that being open about your black experience would hinder you what i'm trying to capture is i'm trying to give you a glimpse into what my default feelings were about my blackness growing up and that default was anything that was distinctly black anything that would be perceived as distinctly black would somehow raise into question my value because there was just like a there was just like this overlay presumption of racism you know white is good black is bad now wherever i got that i mean we could talk about that but i'm just saying i'm remembering that that was my default i'll give you one example that just came to mind from second grade so this is 1976 and at this point I already experienced myself as I was very popular. I was very well liked by, you know, the students and the teachers. At that point, at second grade, I was the best speller. I had the best penmanship. I got good grades. And I used to, you know, like win all the spelling bees. So this is my second grade experience. We had a substitute teacher. Uh, our regular teacher was Miss Pecos. And our substitute teacher was a woman named Mrs. Armstrong. And she said... I don't remember the full context, but she, we were talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers. And she said, so who's number 32, Michael, to me? You should know, is what she said. And I said, and actually, I didn't know, and I, which I should have known. And I was like, I don't know. Why should I know? And she said, because you're black. Oh, my God. And let me tell you something. Even now, telling that story, I promise you, I felt wounded. Like, I was mm. devastated. I, I think... It almost felt like I was dissociating a little bit and it was like, it slowed down and my face just blanked and I checked out and I ignored her the rest of the class. Now, what happened was I was in the advanced reading group, which, you know, this is weird back in those days, but they had like six of us were in the advanced reading group and we would leave the rest of the kids and sit in this circle and have advanced reading while the rest of the class sat over and did the other work. She kept asking questions during that whole time. I ignored her the rest of the day because I was, I mean, I don't know what I was. I was dissociated, but I felt mad. She had wounded me. She had hurt me. Okay. So that was in 1976. I never forgot that story. But now when I look at that, I think, my gosh, I actually think she maybe didn't mean anything racist about it. She just figured, well, Franco Harris is black and you're black. Surely, you know, that Franco Harris is this person. But for me, somehow just saying that I was black destroyed the fantasy that I had where I was just like all the other kids. I was just a normal kid in there that got good grades and was friendly and got along. And she had to remind me and everyone else that I was somehow that thing that was different. Right. But I don't know. I think that story sort of captures hmm. one way of what I'm trying to say. So that means that the much as I dislike the overuse of the phrase, but the internalized racism yeah, I know. was 
evident in you from from second grade. From second grade, at least, yeah. At least, right. Can you try to describe some of the circumstances preceding that that cemented that idea that your blackness is something that you should be ashamed of? It's a good question. Not yet. Maybe I'll say it later. Um, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because I don't want to, but because I'm really like, I'm experiencing like interesting, like that second grade event, you know, part of what it's helping me to remember is, you know, what, like, I kind of want to explain what my state of mind and my experiences were like, outside of this reminder of being black um because i'm having all these memories and around the same time one other story and then i'll try to tell you like when the world felt so great because for me school was a really positive experience like you know how a lot of especially in the american experience a lot of kids have quote unquote their trauma in school for me school was always like the sanctuary the safe haven that was where i was thriving and felt safe and all this. So one other story I remember that just, again, this is like, uh, I don't know. It's maybe it's it's therapeutic to express it. It's probably valuable maybe for others to hear. I don't know. Um, There were, at least in our elementary school, because, you know, elementary, once elementary school becomes middle school and middle school becomes high school, the other communities come together, it gets bigger. So the numbers of blacks will go up. Um, but in elementary school, there were only, I think, four of us in the class. And the class would be like 60 kids, two separate classes of 30. So there were like four blacks total. And in so I remember we were in gym class. Now, remember, this is Western Pennsylvania. I'm in gym class. And Mr. McKinsey, our teacher, was about to teach us how to um, do the polka. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to dance and do the polka. Okay. And he was randomly picking partners for everyone. Now, there was only one other Black girl in the class. And as he's going through the list, I was dreading that he was going to put me with the other Black girl. I was dreading. I was just like, just. And, you know, I don't know why I was, I just did not want to be with the other black girl. And surely enough, when he got down to it, he said, and Michael and Don, and there we were. Don Lee and I were together and we had to do the polka together and learn how to do this. And, you know, I don't know why then, but I'm thinking back now, now. And I think it reminds me of another version of the second grade story where it, you know, you could say, oh, you hated your own people. I don't think that it was just, no, you're now breaking this bubble. You're, you're now mm-hmm. proving that I'm that thing that is somehow in my, in my world to be known and identified as Black is always going to be questioned or lesser or something that's very, very, very painful. So, yeah. Did, I mean, both of these examples are in school, which I, I would imagine is kind of maybe a heightened place where you were particularly committed to trying to erase any differences, which I think it is for a lot of people. You just don't want to be pointed out in any, singled out in any way. Um, Outside of school, did you also feel this kind of 
push and pull, this tug or or this desire to erase in other contexts? Did it kind of replicate? Well, the first thing I think of is to give the other side of the story, which is very complicated and painful. And I hesitate only because I can't wait until we get to the parts of the conversation where I tell you all the wonderful things about my childhood. Because <laughs> <laughs> there really are wonderful things, okay? But this is, I yeah. mean, I do appreciate being able to talk about this. The issue with... Nobody downloads podcasts to listen to happy things. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, this is okay. This is what is tough about talking about race in the Black American, in my Black American experience. But I got to tell you, mm-hmm. this is what I'm happy to be able to explore with you guys. You know what I mean? Um, if you can't imagine that it really was tough enough to be Black in my Western Pennsylvania 1970s and 80s upbringing, which it was tough, if you think that wasn't tough enough, then imagine the fact that within our own Black community, there were just as equally painful, if not more, divisions between the light skin and the dark skin Blacks, which, I mean, looking back, it just so happened that most of those divisions were probably organized around class lines. But, you know, hell if I knew anything about class and race theory or anything, it was just like, all I knew was all during the week, I had to be fabulous so that I wouldn't be singled out as being black. And then during the weekend, when we went to the city, we were in our black Baptist church, my black Baptist father, who is light skin with green eyes with his, you know, brown skin wife, who's light skin, brown skin, and all of his light kids in a church that's predominantly dark skin, inner city blacks. It was not easy. So, so the other side was, Oh, okay. So here we're with our people in the church And much of my experience was being picked on for trying to be white. You want to be white. You're acting white. You're talking white. So I have this story that's seared in my mind where during Sunday school, and I love Sunday school, we would go around and this is like sort of teenage, the teenage Sunday school boys group. And we each would read. And before it would get to me, most of the kids reading would sound like this. They would say, and then the apostle. Apostle, Apostle Paul said, and then it would get to me, and I'd say, and then the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Come before winter. I mean, and it's like, okay, <laughs> and I got in trouble for that. You're trying to be white, you're acting white, you don't like, and it was, you know, it was really, it was painful, but yet, and this is the part was that's literacy really, also considered white. Say again. Was literacy specifically also considered right or yep. just the accent and pronunciation? No, I, I, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say literacy, but it was the way it showed up was if you read like that, you thought you were better than us. Hmm. And so the real, I mean, there's so many things that are painful about this. The real painful thing is I would be lying to you if I said that that little kid didn't feel some sense of superiority or some sense of like, yesness in that experience. And they were probably picking up on that. They were probably reflecting it. But the other way I was experiencing it was I was also hurt by it. I felt that I felt their, the brunt of their disdain or something. One other story about that. And then in the church, there's this memory I have where, so like during the morning services, there's this part of the service where the church clerk, comes up and we'll read the morning announcements. And 
you know, it's like this elected position and my sister got elected as the church clerk for a few years, you know, which, yeah, they could have said it was nepotism. There's the pastor's daughter. She's a church clerk for a while, but she was preparing to read the announcements for this particular Sunday. And she came to me in crisis because she knew that if she pronounced the word right, the whole congregation would laugh at her. The word was Buena Vista and everyone there said Buena Vista. Huh. So she said, what should I do? And I was like, read it correctly. You know, <laughs> who cares what they think? You should read the right thing. She said, they're going to laugh at me. I was like, I don't care. Do it. So I like coached her to say Buena Vista. She didn't know even to the last minute if she was going to do it or not. And there we are. The church is packed, you know, a couple hundred people. Church is packed. She's reading the announcement and she's getting close to it. And she says something like, and the services will be held at the da 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 church at 1240 Buena Vista. And ah! <laughs> the whole congregation broke out into laughter. And she looked at me like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> oh, mortifying. To be fair, I also laugh hard at Vanessa when she pronounces the yeah, accurate yeah. Spanish. You know, people, in, get, people give me a really hard time when I do that. Because, because it's ridiculous. And <laughs> Vanessa, in response, mocks me when I pronounce the, the Hebraic um <laughs> pronunciation of names and and words i i i mean it's not it's not in defense of it and, and the, no, the, it. the the hurt of being on the outside of the mockery when it's not just friendly quip is yeah is clear when you feel that you're being drawn or or ostracized um but it also it's it's ridiculous when vanessa does it <laughs> i disagree <laughs> I'm I'm in Misha's camp. It's the right way to pronounce the word. <laughs> yeah, but you know what feels so dare I say it, it feels like it must be some part of my healing to review these stories is that I do see it differently now. Mm. Like I think, and look, I think in a way we were all victims of this mess. It's all bull crap. Like white people, black people, dark skin, like we were all victims of, like we were all just playing out our part of something that we needed to at some point start to heal. And maybe I'm trying to do that now. But what I mean is, yeah, you know, there's one, I can look back and think my sister and I, we were just playing out the narrative of being victimized. You know, they're picking on us because we're doing the right thing and they're just blaming us because we're light-skinned. That's true enough, but because I see it in more complex terms now, you know what I would do now? If I could go back in a time machine, this is what I would do in preparing to read that. I would say, da 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 1240 Buena Vista Street, or hold on, or like some of y'all folks around here say it, Buena Vista, and they would have laughed and hmm. that would have been the thing. You know what I mean? Like Because you would have signified that you were in on a joke. Absolutely. In on the joke, but also it would have been, what's the term that we use now? Code switching? Like that, mm -hmm. that would have been the code switching that just validates all of us. Like in that right. one little joke, I'm saying, yeah, we are in two worlds. I'm acknowledging both. And there it is. I'm thinking, wow, I didn't know that in my youth. That's a brilliant right. point, actually. Because it's so much of that facade of tribal signifiers yep. Yep. Is, is, is immediately dissipated the moment you acknowledge the game. Exactly. That you know that, you, you know that the game is, goes on. Like it, can, it can only attack you when you seem to be the victim of exactly. the game. That you, oh, you said, you, you pronounce it like they did, like the outsiders, the others did. 
the moment you said like, yeah, yeah, no, I can do, I can do it. I know, I know what you think. I know you're aware of it. And it's suddenly like, oh, it's kind of silly. And it's kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of beautiful too. It's kind of beautiful that you can say you can have both. Yep. But it's shocking how difficult it is in real time when you're there to do it. When you're, even, even when you are some uh, cognitive limit aware of the game happening and that you can kind of jump across the fence and play both parts when you're there, when you are facing the crowd that expects you to be one thing and you are drawn in a different direction because of your own experiences, it is so difficult to navigate. Yep. And the pressure of scorn, of scorn from your community or from the community that you want to be accepted into and the judgment, it's devastating. But that's, that's why humans suck, generally, because that's, that's what animals do, social animals do. Um, that's how they, they define their ins and outs. That it's, it's part of the, uh, of the suffering of, of groups. How do we, how do we systematize a, a better version of it? A more, I don't want to say egalitarian, but a more humorous approach to these identity denominations i really don't know you know to be honest i don't know but i have the sense that what we're doing now is like an early stage glimpse of what we can do like hosting the conversations having the conversations you know what i mean like i think to be honest better for me to tell the truth and all of its sort of ugly contradictions than for me to have like this neat narrative about I was a victim of race and now I'm just telling you the story. It's like, it is complicated. You know what I mean? Like, as you could hear just from the story, and I just think maybe this is how, but also like there are trade-off gifts and plights that come with the human experience. Like I'm thinking, I have this view. And I mean, I think you know this because I love, I love bringing this I love bringing up the Joseph story from the Bible, you know, where Joseph is like thrown in the ditch and left for dead by his brothers. And I love this verse in the Bible where at that point in the story, the verse says they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And then at the end of the story, it was that plight that got Joseph to be adopted into the Pharaoh's house. So he is like the right-hand man to Potiphar and, you know, the rest of the story when his family was about to die from the famine, look at this. Joseph is the right-hand man. He has the resources to save them. And he actually does. So in that story, I think, wow, this myth, this biblical story actually gives me a way to make philosophy on my own experiences and say, listen, I got to tell you, Yeah, I do, even though, you know, I kind of love and hate this word trauma, but yeah, I really do have trauma. Some of it I'd love to forget. Some of it I do remember too much, but that trauma, as bad as it was, that's my story. Like anything that I could remotely call a gift of mine is the flip side of some kind of pain. (laughs) It's like the flip side, either trying to overcompensate and I'm thinking, hey, I'm kind of glad I learned how to diagram those sentences. I'm kind of glad I was striving to be really, really on top. 
Like if that came out of some defensiveness over race trauma and class fear, then, hey, I'll take the gifts and I'll also take the responsibility to try to heal from the negative stuff of that. So I don't know. I think that is, I mean, I don't want to, it is incredibly profound what you're saying that the, the, the pain that you've suffered is the flip side of the gifts that you've received and kind of, and the strengths that you have. And I, I don't want to, you know, say that that's, that I think that is, a, that is absolutely true. On the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's, un, it's just unfair. Yep. It strikes me as an unbelievably unfair. Absolutely. That for that you, a kid that, lo- and a, and an now an adult who loves to read, who loves words, who finds true joy of that as an individual, perhaps this is as like an innate trait of yours was not allowed to be something congruous with blackness. Like yeah. that's just, it just strikes me as incredibly unfair. Yeah, you know it what is I unfair. mean? It doesn't have to. It, like it's just. It's just. Why would that have to be the case? That those things would have to be intention. You know, and yeah. and you can say that maybe it was because of your aspiration to be beyond black, but it could also have just been like this is this is something that innately gives you joy. You know what I mean? It's hard to disentangle those two things. Yeah, that's that's very well said. I so appreciate hearing that. Wow. I don't know if you uh, read the the writings of Coleman Hughes, but he uh, Chloe's friend. But he writes Chloe Valdery. Yeah. Chloe Valdery. Yeah, yeah. On the show, he wrote profusely about that experience of a rejection by his own black friends and from his own black community when he wanted to show interest in in STEM or in reading or in, in any of that because that because it was so clear that there were two gangs and there is the playing white and there was playing black. And never the twain shall meet. Yeah, I Which is so stupid be. because there's such a strong, there's so many strong black intellectuals of, that oh, have totally. such a rich of history. It's like it's so silly. Yeah, totally. Of course it's stupid. I mean, it's just like many, like they, it doesn't even bear mentioning how dumb it is. Well, you know, <laughs> That's how those, those clicks, those mental clicks work. And now, and in the same way, by the way, that um, um, some Republican voters, some of the, the Republican base, associate intellectualism with hostility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, well, there was mm-hmm. no reason. It's, it's not as if the South didn't have its share of, of, of amazing American authors and, and thinkers. And there's, there's a great history to that. But when you buy into almost a gang mentality of what it means to be you and what it means to be the other, then, then, then you commit to it, and if it so happens that the 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 trappings of education fell on the other side of the fence, then you need to denounce them. Yeah, that's right. And it's absurd. It is absurd. And you know, as I listen to you, I think, yeah, this is this is the point. I think it is all absurd. But the real challenge, like when you say, how can we systematize or do something? I think the something that we're wanting to do is. Ask the question, how does any of us find our way to, I don't know, disillusionment, the truth, finding out that what we assumed was a lie? For me, where I was lucky, and I'm happy to use that word, where I was lucky was I eventually found out that all of those things that I talked about 
were lies. Like, you know, the rate, like, I mean, look, there was enough truth to the pain. The pain is real, but I mean, the reductionistic camp identification axioms that whiteness means evil, dark-skinned blacks are against light-skinned blacks, straight people hate gays, like all of those reductionist trauma narratives, I was lucky to see them unravel enough in my experience that my conclusion was eventually, oh, everybody's full of shit. (laughs) And (laughs) no one gets to tell me who I am. I get to just explore. That was my accidental discovery, which I'm really grateful for. So I'm thinking, "Mm, how do we get people to have their aha moment? And even now, I'm, I mean, I'm both a little giddy and a little ashamed to admit this, but like, look at me, dudes, I'm living in Harlem and I love it. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an accident. I love Mm -hmm. being around black people. And one of my favorite, favorite groups to be playing with, it's almost like I'm playing in the sandbox. It's with straight black men. Oh my God. And I'm really lucky. Like I have a lot of straight black male friends. Many of them are colleagues. I met them as colleagues. And I got to tell you, I'm having so much fun. And you know why? Because I'm still amazed. I'm still like unraveling the lies that I had. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're just like everyone else in both the good and the bad. They're just- I think that needs needs more unpacking. Where as a gay black man, where did you see that 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 line? Yeah. I mean, again, what was the what were the mutual stigmas that you had? Okay, so the, again, these are childhood narratives. As by the way, most of our adult shit is childhood narratives. But my childhood experience narrative was, and by the way, the black women; those are my buds. I felt safe with them, which is why I probably just like like my reaction to Michelle Obama is kind of like, yeah, it's like okay. But black straight men, I felt threatened by because hey, I had a few experiences where straight black men made fun of me for being a sissy or for being gay. So there I conclude that straight black men are evil. You know, I mean, that's this, that's sort of the childhood version that it took me years as an adult to say, uh, okay, we need to sort of rewrite this. Mm. When does the consciousness of being gay kicks into all of this for you? What age you mean? What age, what experience, what context? I mean, it's, I don't know. Look at that. I just remember so many stories, ninth grade or no, it was seventh or eighth grade. I remember I was walking up to the top floor. I can't remember if it was the third or fourth floor where the older kids were, but whatever floor was higher, I walked up there and there was like a group of African-American dudes who lived in the projects, mind you. So I want to bring class into it as well. And as I walked by, they said, Hey, Michael, how are the ladies treating you? No, how are the guys treating you? I mean, the ladies, I mean, the ladies. And ah, they laugh and they laugh. And of course, I was mortified. Like, I really felt just mortified. And so from that day forward, I was wary of being made fun of by a straight black man. You know I mean? This mm-hmm. is. And you were, just to clarify, you were in the closet at that point. Like, I was nobody. The, I, yeah, yeah, I thought I yeah. was. <laughs> right, right. No, 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 but I actually meant when, when did you realize that you're gay? Uh, and how does that interface with your understanding of yourself and your place in the community? I mean, look at this. You're going to see this theme. I mean, just like with race, it wasn't like I discovered that I was gay. I fought mm. being gay until I could no longer fight it. You might say mm. I fought being black until I could no longer fight it. You know, it's like, mm. oh man, it's, it's, there's really a parallel. 
Um, so for me, my earliest experiences with gay identity was praying to God to take it away. Hmm. Praying. I mean, think of this, this young teenager praying desperately, begging, fasting too, like fasting and praying, begging God to take this sin away, staying up late at night, watching like Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, calling to these prayer lines. I mean, that's what this kid was doing in between writing in his journal about being gay. So it's not like, oh, I knew and I just need to come out. I was begging for it to go away. And by the way, when I did come out in 1991, I came out alone in my journal, and I wrote this letter to God. And this is what I said. And I'm, by the way, I'm proud of the person that this, you know, what was I, 22? The 22-year-old me, I finally came to this conclusion where I said this to God. And I wrote this all on my journal. I said, okay, look, here's the deal. If this is a problem for you, me being gay, I'm telling God this, then you take it away. In fact, mm -hmm. I want you to take it away. But I tell you what, I will never waste my energy trying to get rid of it again, I will now take responsibility and create my own moral life around being gay. You know why? Because I think it's unfair if me being so kind, I'm a good kid, I'm smart, I'm loving. And one problem like being gay is enough for me to be an abomination for you. I'm done. And I really was done. And I got to tell you, that was so liberating. So I came yeah. out. That's so powerful, Misha. Like that, the amount of like the self love it. that you needed to have to. Oh, oh, oh to you do made that. me cringe so much with the word self love. But but I mean, I don't, I don't use that word often. I feel like this is the first time I've used that word. But like, no. how else can you describe the like that confidence, that the, confidence, no, clarity, assertion, but no. assertion, assertion, backbone, many but words that do not. That. It's more, it's more than assertion. Cause like, I mean, saying like, I, like, look at me and all, like all that is good about me. Yeah. This, like this, I am better than what, what, <laughs> what one would want to cast upon me because of this one characteristic. Like that's funny how you see it. American Vanessa sees the, the self-love. I don't see the self-love. I see the rejection of the, of the repression that has been. Yeah, that's right. You. Listen, that's and both, the idea no? that, that, that there's a God. That how do you get to one without the other? You can totally relinquish the shackles and say, I might not love myself, but it is I who gets to hate myself. You don't get to hate me. <laughs> That's right. If you're omnipotent and have the power to determine who I will be, and this is how you've created me, then this is who I am. This is what I am. If I decide to make war against myself, then that's my business. But I owe you no explanation or an apology or to change my way just for a chance at your redemption. Listen, I think you're onto it, Adam, but you know, the fact that you're cringing at me at her saying self-love, I don't agree with that part. I think... Of course you don't. I, look, I think... I, I didn't use self-love, and I don't think the self-love was there yet. So I kind of agree mm. with you. But I think she's right to say that that was the... Oh, gosh, I don't know. That was the early signs that I would get there, that I had the mm. capacity to get to self-love. But that wasn't... That was not yet self-love. That was just sick of itness. <laughs> I was sick of it. Yeah. And it was kind of like, I really did think about, it. I thought, oh my gosh, like this 20, I mean, could you imagine? I'm amazed that I even like passed college, the energy being in the closet and doing all that. And I'm thinking, oh my God, all these gifts that I have. And this one little thing is enough. No, I'm done. And it really was liberating, but there was still, there were still uphill battles. I wouldn't come out for three more years to my family. You know, it was three, three years before I had the courage to try that one. So I think assertion works for me. 
being sick of it works for me. A kind of just, it was, there was an absurd, an absurd disillusionment that I had towards this idea of a loving God that would hold a very, very trivial attribute against someone who was otherwise bearing profound witness to his attribute. It's like, give me a break. So it was, it was a lot of things, but I don't know that it was self-love yet. In fact, you know, I wanted to say earlier, I forget when this was, but um, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, Natalie Portman played um, Anne Frank in the diary of Anne Frank on Broadway. And I went to see this and I just remember the scene and the character with whom I'm most related in terms of my blackness. Uh, I mean, you know, the story, the boy who I think the boy who was a teenager who actually shared the room with Anne Frank in the attic in Amsterdam, he had this monologue where they were all fantasizing about what they were going to do when they got out of that attic and got back to normal. And I remember, gosh, his monologue, he said, when I get out of here, I'm done being Jewish. I'm not going to be Jewish anymore. And he meticulously goes through and talks about how he's changing everything so that he's done with being Jewish. And I remember I wept during that scene. I wept because I was like, I know just what you mean. And, you know, like the, the experience that I always had was, okay, you know what I cringe at? Adam, like if you're cringing at the self-love term, I cringe at self-hate. Like when people talk about self-loathing, <laughs> I cringe. Like, cause people have suggested that to me over the years and say, you're a self-loathing black person. They no, I'm not. Like, how dare you call me self-loathing? I'm self-hurting. Like I'm hurting, but that's not loathing. So that, that Jewish boy that said he was done being Jewish, he doesn't hate himself. He hates what he's forced to be by someone else defining his Jewishness that way. And he was saying, if this is what it means to be Jewish, I'm done. And that's what I was saying. If being black means less than I'm done being black and I'm done being less than. Mm. But that's different than saying self-loathing. And I think we should get it right. I think we should contemplate the idea of self-harm and self-loathing in a much more nuanced sense. We should look at the conditions which really lead to the thing that's under examination. I have a question yeah. if I can, I mean, I don't know if this will take us in the, in, I, I know that part of the things that we wanted to talk about in this conversation is uh, trauma. And I, and I think that it's, I don't know, Misha, I'd like, I'd love to just know, first of all, cause I know that your professional work is you work with people who have experienced trauma yeah. and then you've been talking a lot about your personal experience of trauma. So I was just wondering if, if you wouldn't even mind just defining it um, as you define it as a professional and then personally, how you think, how you think about this term. Yeah. I, to be honest, it's hard to define it because in the professional context, believe it or not, we spend so much time trying to like soften the definition because it's such a trigger word for everybody, you know? Hmm. So, you know, we, we, my colleagues and I who talk a lot about it in certain mental health contexts, we end up twisting ourselves and not trying to just say, look, trauma is just like really, really, really intense adversity. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's stressed. It's really, really stressed to the max. So I think one of the reasons why we're doing that is because it's a hard term. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's hard, not because it's hard to grasp conceptually, 
But part of the effect of trauma is that you want to be in denial over it. You want to escape. I mean, it's a really good gift of the brain to disconnect. I mean, one of the, let me just get, okay. So one of the traits of one of the possible traits or effects of trauma is dissociation. Yeah. Dissociation is a gift from the brain. I mean, it's the brain's way of saying, look, this is so painful. I'll just check you out. So you don't have to be aware of it. What a great gift. You could just check out so that you don't have to be overwhelmed by the pain that would otherwise seem to crush you. But the problem is that's good temporarily. Like it's great to be temporarily disconnected from your pains. So you could just get through that moment, but at some point you're going to have to be able to bring the pain to awareness so that you could be freed from it so that you could somehow integrate it and all of those things. So that's like, that's kind of a nutshell, not a nutshell, but that's kind of a snippet way of looking at what's so tricky about trauma is we want to not remember the thing that is painful. And so if the conversation is bringing people into consideration of the thing that they don't want to be considering, that's, that's very tricky. So what does that tell us about the Vanessa had a, a wonderful conversation with, with Caitlin Flanagan about the concept creep of trauma and she, Vanessa actually made me even more aware of just how uh, adverse damaging even the prevalence of trauma as an idea in our everyday quotidian vocabulary has been yeah. on the process of actually coping with trauma. What does the yeah. fact of disassociation and the, the cognitive uh, recoiling away from uh, tr dealing with traumatic experiences reveal to us in a world where everything is trauma? It's the, the creepiest of concept creeps. And, and it's something that we talked about a lot, you and I. It seems that every social interaction can be elevated to the, to the degree of, 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 of trauma in, in, in the current public discourse. It's, it's almost the currency of the public discourse. We, we even uh, remember when the story broke, you and I talked about this, about the girl who was um, questioned, like was sitting in Smith College, just the Smith College scandal, when the girl was sitting at, at the back of a cafeteria and she, she was uh, reading a book and the janitor asked her to what she was doing there. And she experienced it or later on recast it as, as an emotional attack for her being black, like she was reading while black. And it was uh, covered at the time as an, a, a story about racial aggression and it had severe consequences to the people involved until the, the, the New York Times' story calling essentially bullshit on the whole incident. Uh, the girl's experience was uh, depicted as traumatic. And now I... I, I I assume that you, you, you'll agree with me that this is an abuse of the word trauma if the word trauma yeah. is to mean anything. Well, guess what? This is true. But here's the, here's the dizzying irony about it. That itself is one of the symptoms of trauma. So in other words, like irrational huh. overestimations of things is a trauma trait. Hyper arousal, 
hypervigilance, dissociation. So in other words, if you hear a car backfiring, you think it's a bomb going off. That is not rational. It's not a bomb. But guess what? Anyone that's going to think that a simple car's backfiring is a bomb going off, that itself is a potential trauma trait. So my point is, it's making me reconsider. I actually think that, you know, I hate it because I just want to dance and have joy and positive things. But that's why I think I hate the so-called overestimation of trauma. But the truth is, if we are this hypersensitive as a culture, it's probably trauma. Because why else would we be so hypersensitive? Like no one would want to be so irrationally hypersensitive unless there's really something that's leading to that. So I think that I'm reconsidering that the reason why we have all of these exaggerated estimations is because there's a lot of dissociated hurt that we just have. But we were in a zeitgeist that almost values having the the going through this hurt that that pays dividends to this kind of hypervigilance, which either re-traumatizes people or to some degree manufactures it because it tells you that you are being judged. You cannot take one step down the street without being looked upon by your neighbors as someone who's different or is worthless or or needs to be or, or doesn't really belong in that environment. And when you're doing that, Aren't you creating the trauma? Aren't you now the force that is, is applying the, the pressure to view yourself as, as judged by racial differences and what's more judged as an inferior? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, here's, here's the problem with the term. It's like, like in a way, like, you know, another way that I like to respond is to say, in a way, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if it's trauma or not. We've got some problems. Like, we've got some problems we have to work out. So, for example... It is conceivable. Like I'm listening to what you're describing. I'm thinking like even in a family systems way, it is not only conceivable, you can expect that a parent's unresolved trauma, let's say, let's say it really is trauma, but a parent's unresolved trauma will automatically become recreated in the environment of the house. So you have a child who is growing up in a house where in a sense, the culture of traumatic responses may become sort of the norm for them. And you can say, well, they're not traumatized. You're right. They're not. But guess what? The culture is creating sort of the habits, if you will, of trauma. And so that's what I think. I think we're in a, like the the irony of the American experience is you have people who from all measurements, what are we crying about? They have resources, they have health, they have support systems, but they're acting like someone who was like, went through a completely different experience. Well, my mm-hmm. point is it's conceivable that what I'm calling culture or socialization could give you the same outcome, even though you really didn't go through it. We- yes, but the difference, but, but difference in diagnosis matters because let me take it does matter. Uh, it matters greatly because I'm going to speak from my experience so that, that I'm not going to make any assumptions about, you know, black experience yeah. or, or gay or, or women. When you live in Israel, you every every year maybe even more often you will you will be in a classroom in in some public surrounding that will um compel you to watch 
a, a series of Holocaust documentaries yeah, and yeah. movies and Schindler's List and, and, and the other emotionally manipulative <laughs> uh, uh, yes. visual products that make you feel persecution. You feel it directly. I, I, I did not experience the Holocaust, nor did my mom, nor did my grandparents. My only connection to the Holocaust is through my grandmother's family, who indeed perished there. But the, the, the trauma is, is very thin in that sense. Does that, but, but I have a strong sense of anger and rage of that because I've been encultured to think that. It, exactly. it was effectively state propaganda that told me that I constantly need to be thinking about this. Now, as uh, uh, somebody who, who often laments the lack of historical education in, in the United States, there's no denying that there is some severe lack in discussing the history of, of slavery, of racism, and even just basic history in this country. But at the same time, I'm also acutely aware of how effective this type of socialization is. And to what end? Does it make us closer to healing, Con being constantly reminded and, and, and told that we are being persecuted? You, you know, Passover is, is, is coming soon, and there is this lovely tradition of reciting... Um, Every generation and generation, the nations try to destroy us and we will overcome. That just being reminded that part of the identity of being Jewish is that you're being persecuted. No, it's, the persecution is true. You can deny the history of anti-Semitism or the pogroms and certainly not the Holocaust. But if we're talking about a psychology, is that necessarily a path to healing or is that uh, a path towards more adversity, anger, resentment? And, and the entrenchment of nationalistic passions. When you sent me that text, some of the, 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 the words that I think triggered me into wanting to have this um, um, heated discussion with you is uh, things that had the air of a desire to reassert some national identity, whether like, the national black identity, you compared it to yeah. um, people from, from the Jewish experience being able to assert their, their national identity in, in the form of Israel and having those, those, those newly occultured uh, symbols and, 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 and cultural tropes that they can draw on and, and feel associated yes. with. And I see that as, as I, see the, I see the value in it, but I also see the deep, deep danger. I agree. I, I agree with you fully. And that's why I say, remember, that's what I was struggling to say at the very, very beginning when I said, oh, I'm glad I had a few weeks to think about it. Because at the time when you spoke to me, I was in it. You know what I mean? I was taking on, I was doing the same thing I do anytime I go into a community. I mean, I think you've heard me joke before about I'm such an existentialist who loves traveling to the other that I think, thank God there's tribalism or else I'd have nowhere to go visit. You know what I mean? Like, like when I, when I would go to Simchat Torah with all these Orthodox Jewish people that are celebrating, like, I love being the other, like, I love being able to see that. But then I think, oh my gosh, there's no way in the world I would want to reduce my complex identities to one. And to be honest, that's how I felt a little while after reflecting on my excitement over being immersed in a documentary about my Black Baptist upbringing. I don't want to suddenly say, oh yeah, that's my new identity. I'm Black again. I'm all, because guess what? I love Black community, but I also love any number of communities where I get to either be just visiting or I could identify somewhat with it. 
So I, I agree with what you're saying. I really do. And I'm glad you gave me a chance to clarify my excitement over rethinking my Black upbringing was I was able to see it and feel it with such beauty and admiration, but not to the point of returning to a tribe. Vanessa, you wanted to say something. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's taking us back a little bit, so hopefully that's okay. But yeah, I, I had just two two reactions to kind of what where we were talking what we were talking about earlier. Because one thing that you said, Misha, yep. was that you know, like it does seem so odd that for at this moment in time, for us to be kind of bringing up trauma so often at a time when we have you know, I think you said well, social support, and and I just do one thing. I just want to point out is that. Uh, a lot of people in the U.S. don't have those things. And it's specifically... Yeah, fair enough. For the most part, like right now, we're seeing it particularly hit people from low-income communities, people of color. So I just want to I just want to point that out, that we can't necessarily say that as like a, a catch-all for the U.S., even, even though overall... Even though overall, yes, we can say that, you know, in the U.S. overall, we are at a better place now in terms of, you know, life expectancy and, and everything with, with COVID notwithstanding. But um, so I just wanted to, to. And I will say that I don't think it's usually the lower income communities that use the word trauma. Sure. Yes. Yes. I think that's a very good point. I think if you talk about code switching, I think using the word trauma is at this current moment a status symbol. And it tells you that you belong to a certain uh, uh, group of, of literati and you understand, you understand what it means, trauma, what you're indicating. You understand what kind of people are allowed to talk about their trauma and what people are. Yeah, on. See, I don't you, think well, so. Come on. If you, as somebody who, you know, you spoke a lot about the, the trauma of the South, you know, you had in one of your most radical empathy moments, Misha, you, you have the... Your your refrain about and sorry, Vanessa. I know that I'm I'm cutting you off, and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll no, make it's okay. it quick. This is, so this is more towards my second point, anyway. So, um, the you you had the the story about how you always thought that Obama on his first week in office should have went down a tour in the through the South, hugging white yes. uh, uh, farmers. <laughs> but how much legitimacy will uh, most of our friends and and you know the public figures would give? to a southerner talking about his southern trauma that will that will not fly that will not fly no matter how low he's on the social economic grade no matter how wanting and privilege his life might be in other respects if he doesn't check the right boxes he doesn't qualify for the word trauma hmm. so i don't i don't agree with the with the with, the, with vanessa's qualifications broadly i do i do agree that you could still speak analytically about trauma um, and, and, and I would wholeheartedly agree that in, it is in those w- more uh, hurt and weaker communities, whether it is community of colors or not, and whether it's, it's lower class or not. But usually it is the communities who cannot speak about trauma, whose trauma needs to be heard the most. Well, I mean, listen, that much I do agree with. I don't know. All I want to say is it just it, it begs us considering why the mere term of trauma and somehow finding resonance in victimization, why it's so prevalent. It just, you know, we have to wonder why people are finding so much resonance in a concept that's making sense of their experience. I just think that's worth looking at. Even if we need to help tweak the definitions, fine, but I don't want to dismiss an entire sociocultural trend 
about which we should we should try to see what it means before this. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a kind of where I, I, the other point I wanted to bring up a little bit because I I do think that there is it is it is doing some good, and I guess yep. the way that I'll explain like because I, I definitely see the potential downsides of what's happening, but I guess when I'm talking thinking about the upsides, what I think. Part of what's so difficult, and I experienced this like after the Me Too movement and everything. Part of what's so difficult about experiencing the uh, these kinds of s- somewhat like e- seemingly small interactions yep. um, that are kind of sitting within you unexplored, and then it takes something like this moment uh, exactly. to kind of reevaluate these small moments. And and part of what's so powerful about it is that. You're con- at least in my personal experience, you're constantly downplaying yes. the little things, right? You're constantly saying to yourself, "Oh, that wasn't. He's having a bad day. That's not misogyny. Am I going crazy? Was that? Am I insane that I exactly. feel like I'm constantly being undermined by this like person? Like I- I'm, I must be wrong. I must be making a mistake. And so you're con- like, there's this constant dialogue with yourself. And then when somebody gives you the license to kind of to reframe everything that's happened in your life in a way where you're like, I wasn't fucking crazy. Exactly. That probably was it's happening. so astute. <laughs> and it wasn't right, right? And like now all of a sudden I can like look back on my my series of life experiences and just, and be like, that I I I now feel like I can say that those exper- like it wasn't in my head. It, there were forces at play, and I can uh, acknowledge things that weren't right and what were hurtful to me. Right? Absolutely. Um, and so in that way, I feel like it's it is it is a very it is a force for for good that can potentially like move us forward. I understand. The potential downside, of course, which is if you just stick in that lane of I've been traumatized over and over again and I and now everything I see is traumatizing, I understand how that kind of dehabilitates our ability to like move forward uh rationally see the difference between uh, a, a, a rational response versus an irrational p- response. but but at the same time, it's hard for me to d- to to parse out the 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 fact that these things are really happening and we need to be able to see them and talk about them and, and acknowledge them. And, and listen, it, 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 the concept, the concept creates a different kind of opening. Like it's the concept of trauma that actually creates the second term of healing. But to be honest, I'm more skeptical about healing than the word trauma. Here's why Adam, I loved hearing you reflect on like the is, you know, in Israel, for the kids mm-hmm. w- watching all of these uh, things about the Holocaust and, and talking about, you know, who knows the degree to which is it okay? Is it trauma? Is it, does it help for healing? I say that I think the brain response is much more neutral. The brain is just creative. The brain will just do like we get, we assign sort of moral value to it later, but the brain is just creative. So here's what I mean. Before I knew the word trauma, I can look back now and say, I didn't think I was traumatized. All I know is my childhood strategy, which in terms of my brain, I think it was pretty brilliant. Instead of being overwhelmed by white people, I loved them. I fell in love with them. I literally, I mean, I literally adopted (laughs) 
this Christian idea of loving the enemy in a way that's really kind of crazy if you think about it. But mm -hmm. it worked for me my entire life. I think that's pretty creative. But now that I'm like learned about trauma and pain, I'm able to look back and say exactly what Vanessa said. I'm able to say, wait a minute, that's a lot of energy to spend loving someone who ultimately you're terrified of. You're terrified of whiteness. You're terrified of your blackness. And so you spend all of your energy loving before they can hurt you. And I think mm -hmm. now that I've studied trauma, bingo, that's a trauma response. Well, I hear, I, I listen to your description, Vanessa, of, of what it means to be able to recontextualize things in your life. And I could, I understand where the, the positives are. Mm -hmm. And my big, my big theme in all our conversation is, if there is one thing I, I despise is repression. <laughs> and that idea of being able to recontextualize some of the hurt that you experienced is potentially a wonderful tool to diagnose and even combat the, the forces that, that oppress you. But at the same time, because our brains are storytelling devices yeah. to, to plagiarize Danny Kahneman, we make up stories based on the plot points that society tells us belong in our, in our personal narrative. So now the, the plot points that we, that, that we need to assimilate into our own narratives are of trauma. And, you know, I heard you say the word, you know, one of the things that really drive me crazy is, is when I hear phrases used without thought or with, when, I, when I think, when I can hear that they are just an echo of some, some social tidal wave. Oh no, so I'm like instance, afraid. What, what the fuck did I say? <laughs> no, no, so it's, it's, it's not a big one. It's, it's a very natural one to use, but it's just the idea, you said, you, I think twice in your uh, description, you said the word move forward as an attempt to move forward. Does it help us to move forward or does it not? What does it mean to move forward? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that it's, this is just a concept now. We need to move forward. What is this? Where is this forward? And where are we moving forward from? Are we moving forward to a place where there is no more traumatizing? Of course not. Because, because as long as there are people interacting with each other, they will press upon their, their, their personal spaces and will live an indentation there that will exist as a trauma. That's what societies do. Are we moving forward toward a place where we are more fond of each other, more tolerant of each other? Clearly not, because as, as, as you've, I think, agreed, I mean, maybe not clearly not, but it seems to me pretty clearly not that this whole, that the trauma scheme only creates more schism and more, and more uh, 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 incentive to find reasons to aggrandize your own story and resent the people who have supposedly, or not supposedly, even very realistically, uh, devastated. I mean, look, to that's... hate the Germans, to hate, to hate the Palestinians in, in the Israeli case, or to, to hate whites or to hate blacks, to hate gays or to hate straights. You're just redrawing the same fault lines over and over and over. Those are fair. Those are so fair. So if it's not that move forward, what move forward is there? It's just the idea of move forward as, as an explanation to why is it okay? Because it helps us move forward. But you know what? If it's a fair skepticism, it's a really fair skepticism because it challenges the you know reductionist nature of our narratives. But if if Vanessa answers it literally, uh, but by the way, Vanessa, I have been very like combative in this conversation, and I and I don't know why. I think it's like it's mm. because we're in a very personal space, and I just yes, want yes, to make yes, sure yes, that yes. you know that I do love you. <laughs> no, I don't. I just wanted to enter it into the record. <laughs> no, and I, think I I should also put that on the record that I think one of the reasons that our, our friendship 
has survived beyond the first 10 minutes where I usually alienate anybody I talk to is because you had the, the, the sanguinity and I think you just dismissed me as, as an abrasive Israeli. Uh, to, to, to take everything I say seven degrees dialed down and 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 not and 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 you know read the the underlying love but i do i feel like i do need to assert it because i've been i think additionally uh, um 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 on edge in this conversation maybe for no good reason but but yeah yes i i accept i accept that yes thank you but i i know that you know entered into the record entered into the record acknowledged and uh i i, I admire uh, what's the word i'm looking for I, I, I'm, I'm, yes. We can move forward now. Yeah, now we can move forward. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, I mean, if, if Vanessa is willing, I think trying to answer the question literally could be really enlightening because everyone, you know, when someone says move forward, despite the wretched cliche nature of the question, I mean, of the statement, people have their own vision of what moving forward is. I mean, I've told enough stories, but I could, I could tell you what moving forward mm. meant to me around straightness, around whiteness, around blackness. But Vanessa must have her own way of answering what moving forward from an otherwise constricting trauma would mean to her. It's a good question. Um, I guess, if, I, get, I mean, there's two levels to this question, right? I think Adam was asking it more on the societal level. And I don't know if I have... An answer right. to that, I guess on the personal level, it would mean not allowing past experiences. I guess, I mean, this is very me, right? I don't want to be irrational about things. <laughs> I want to be rational about things. Yeah. So I want to kind of work past any past uh, traumas that are resulting in irrational behavior. Um, and then also to not feel, to, I guess, to not feel the opposite move forward, not to feel held back. Like I'm stuck in some sort of, uh, developmental stage that I can't break out of because I'm just, uh, tied back by this, uh, thing that's holding me down with its emotion and an emotion that doesn't feel like it has words yet, you know? Um, and so I want to be able to, mm, yes. to vocalize and not and not be stunted, I guess, and not to be like stuck with so much emotion that I can't feel like I can break through. Um, and so I, yeah, I realize that I'm using a lot of cliches here, but it's hard to exactly pinpoint where what I'm trying to where this imaginary state that I'm trying to achieve. But it would be one in which I'm potentially more rational, uh, articulate, uh, and and the hurt isn't visceral and on the surface, I guess. Yeah, that's powerful. I don't know what that means for our society and if there's a parallel between the individual journey and a and a societal one. And I, I want to be clear that I don't think that for a minute you owe me or anyone an explanation of what you mean on a societal level. My rage against cliche is that yeah. we we import into our daily vocabulary things that are used as part of some either academic, journalistic, or, or just other kind of trendy jargon, and, and then thoughtlessly incorporate it into our personal conversations. As long as you, you yeah, know what you mean, as you, or as the both of us know what you mean by it in this conversation, that's all that matters to me. But you know what? It's interesting, Adam. It's so funny. Actually, it's not funny. It's really intense. And I'm not saying this, that Vanessa's doing it. I just think this is like what we do. 
do you know why we do all that twisting? And by the way, it kind of fits that as you know, your Israeli experience, you're, you're wired mm-hmm. more towards being blunt. But I think that's an part of what I'm saying is I think we, <laughs> even as I listen to myself, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining the way I was having this conversation. There was so much avoidance going on. Like, mm. be, mm. and even now, like I said what I'm comfortable saying, but if you really wanted to play the blunt game with me, you would not have taken all of these sort of intellectualized, vague, mm. you would have said, what happened to you? <laughs> right. What was the effect? And that is so hard to talk about because I'm just thinking there wasn't that. And I don't know, maybe I will end the conversation and say, I don't know, but it, like, it scares me. Like even right now, there are symptoms in my body because I'm being real on a level that is trauma related. I mean, you might even hear it right. in my voice, but- right. The event that happened is hard to talk about, but also whatever, what's the term? Whatever neuroses people secretly have in their life, we don't just talk about that. It's easier to talk about politics or it's easier to talk Mm -hmm. about who's doing wrong. And it's easier to talk about justice. But if you talk about that secret part of your life, like this is usually the stuff people find out in a scandal. Mm. Like, oh shit, he was doing that or what? They Those are the things that the theory of trauma has been one of the best recent theories to help people make sense of their own craziness. And so I'm just saying that to say there are events that are still hard to talk about. And anyway, I don't want to repeat. It's so, it, yeah, it's funny because I really wasn't going to let you off the hook. I was going to bring it back and ask what did happen. When I was, and by the way, this is the first time I've ever said this in such a public way, although I did bury this answer in one of my many Quora hmm. answers, and luckily not many people read it at all. Um, virtually none of my friends knows this story. Virtually no, I don't, I mean, Mark, my ex knows this. And I'll just tell the story. When I was four or five years old, it was summertime in our Western Pennsylvania small town. My oldest brother and my mom were sunbathing in our backyard. And I was just outside roaming around. And I came upon these three white boys. And these white boys, if you're looking into the camera of my story, they look like little trashy white boys. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever, you know, little trashy white boys were just there. And I was so curious. Like I wanted to play with them or go see them. And I went up to them and I was like, hey, and they looked at me and immediately I sensed that something was off, but it wasn't enough to yet deter me. And the one boy said to me, hey, we are going to give you a choice. Do you want the toy or do you want the candy? And in that moment, I remember we had been taught already, like not to take things from strangers and not to talk to strangers. So I was using this and I remember I got really assertive and I said, I'm not taking anything from you. And they said, no, no, no. Do you want the toy? And I said, no. They said, then you must want the snack. And they had a bag of dog shit and they threw it in my face. And it was in my mouth. And I I remember (gasps) I was throwing up and I was just like, it was trauma. Like it's the only real trauma I remember having because it was like my senses blanked out. Like there was no file in my brain to make sense of what was happening to me. And I was like, (gasps) and I kind of lost time, but here's how I remember it out of sequence. My mom looked at me and she said, what? 
and she's like freaking out and I'm like gagging and throwing up and my mother, and by the way, this is like the most precious memory of nurturance I have in my life. My mom washed, actually, this is interesting. I remember it completely out of sequence. I, two things happened, but I literally don't remember how it worked out. I, my mom took me immediately to their house. I somehow knew where they lived and my older brother was there and my mom was screaming at the, the mother saying, look at what they did to my son. Look at what they did. Look at him. And like, you know, I'm standing there like that. And my older brother said, I'll kill them. I'll kill them. And the woman who also struck me as a trashy white woman, she was laughing. He didn't do that. They were literally laughing at my mom. And then my mom took me home and she bathed me. She brushed my teeth. She washed me. She cleaned me up. And I felt so taken care of by my older brother saying he was going to kill them and my mother for cleaning me. And that's the trauma that I've never talked about. And, you know, after that, I basically got along with every white person I ever freaking met. I was Mm -hmm. the king of social fitting in for all the rest of the days of my life. Anyway, that's my trauma that I never tell. And um, hey, you guys somehow created safety and a catharsis or whatever for me to tell it. That's well, but I mean, first of all, thank you for telling us. Yeah, I thank mean, you that's, for letting me tell it's it. It's so. Oh, oh. How how oh. often, if at all, do you feel the the desire to just give in to rage and lash out? Yeah, that. Um, my rage is not something that I knew in my life, you know, I mean, it's a, that's a deep psychoanalytic question, which I don't feel the need to give into rage because I've so acclimated myself to redirect the rage to, you know, it's opposite love and joy and acceptance and compassion, and all that. But there is an element. And I say an element because I'm not going to reduce myself to being like, it's too simplified to say, oh, this is just some reaction formation because of pain. That's too reductionist. I think I'm much more complex now. I'm integrated. I really do love and feel compassion. But there is a thread to the, my origin story here where indeed this type of I don't know how I want to say it. My going to kindness and grace is indeed a defense. I don't want you to throw shit in my face. I don't want you to get me. And so I know how to protect myself against that. So I don't know if that answers your question, Rage. I don't know. It's an evolutionary defense mechanism. Say again? It's an evolutionary defense mechanism. Yeah. You're clasping tightly to grace yeah was your refrain about obama hugging the southerner do you think that was also informed by this yeah i mean indeed i mean you know if we were if we were just sort of playing around with i mean i like what you say about narrative this is my narrative if we were looking at this as like a fictional text the reader could say oh (laughs) there goes the recapitulation of his trauma you know, he wants Obama to guard against them throwing the shit in his exactly. face. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's his method of survival. He's so afraid that it's coming. You know, you've got to be vigilant. The backlash is coming. And if only we can anticipate it, we can protect ourselves from the backlash that is going to catch us off guard. And, you know, Trump was the wretched being caught off guard. 
that my narrative imposes upon, you know, the black If only we had, you know, been, you know, and, you know, I mean, think about it. Does my answer suggest that my anger was towards myself? You know, do I need to forgive myself? It's not my fault. Mm. I was a kid that was really victimized by them. But if you, if you interpret my strategy, I've been blaming myself. I wasn't kind enough. You know what I mean? Mm. I failed to win them over. And that's why they threw shit in my face. And if you think about a lot of my political rants, it has that thread to it, eh? Right. Mm. God, I hate humans. <laughs> well, well, that's your takeaway. I mean, I hate the I hate the kids, the 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 kids that threw shit in in Misha's face. It's just like so horrific. And yes, but but I don't know if that's necessarily the. No, it's a cop out. I agree. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, but it's it's just so remarkable how these things can just be harbored and held and shape you for good and yeah, Ill. that's right like you said misha like that's it's right. it's you know you've you've crafted gifts from it yeah um but it's not to say it wasn't just a, a, such a painful but a painful gift to receive right but you know here's let me let me thank you okay thank you for truly co-creating the space for me to do this for me but also like i do anticipate i want other people to hear this as a way to consider taking risk of telling stories because for me you know what kind of opening this gives for me this means that my resistance to being angry and you know calling aggression and violence what it is you know, you could give me a hard time about that now, and I don't have to retreat to my old trauma response. I can actually consider it. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, if I were if I were so repressed about this that I wouldn't even be able to tell the story, I might be making decisions just automatically out of this defense. Whereas now, you know, I hear myself having to weigh out and say, okay, how is this different from the past? How can I make this a separate thing, even though there is a kind of automated emotional narrative response that comes out of history, I can make it something new. I can make it integrated in a much more complex way. So thank you for that opportunity. And that's like in our work, that's what we try to do. Like in the therapeutic spaces, we try to create at least the safety for people to tell their stories so that they can start rewriting it, you know? Right. Right. So thank you for that. Really? Hey. Well, thank you for sharing with us. I mean, I, I don't know, but I think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I've, I've really, really, this, this conversation I think has been like really intense, interesting, um, thoughtful, and I think applicable, like not just, I think, I mean, you shared your personal stories, which I think are very incredibly riveting. And like, and like you and I have talked about, you know, you are, you are actually an expert in this field, but you recognize and acknowledge that it's the personal stories that That's we right. tell that yeah. allow people to really like hold on and grab and understand in a, in a visceral way, in a way you wouldn't just understand if you were here giving us a lecture on trauma. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that this was such, such a great, interesting conversation that I, th- I hope will, will kind of start us thinking about, you know, wh- what are the ripple effects of, you know, each of us in society right now experiencing these different types of traumas and the ways they, they interlay upon each other. Yes. Um, and I mean, I won't, I won't say the words about, you know, those advancing words, but I mean, that's, that's what I want to start 
I mean, that's these are the kinds of conversations that I think we're going to be having. Good. Yeah, we should we should release a self help book. Adam, move forward. The secret to self love in a trauma riddled world. Listen, I gotta say, it's I moving forward to self love. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking. You know, there's a part of me that's thinking, oh gosh, this was so negative and intense. Like, where could there be something light? But this is, I mean, maybe this is a good thing to end on. I, this is a gift I got from my Black experience. And this is what was really captured in the PBS documentary, The Black Church. There's something about the Black experience where I learned that the tragic and the intense can also be experienced as joy. Mm. And so, Adam, remember I was telling you about the song, This May Be the Last Time? I was going to ask you to do it. You read my I mind. Want to, I want to sing this song because like, again, this would have been a song. I would have been so embarrassed to sing in front of white people growing up. But now I'm like, oh my God, I want you to hear this song because, okay, picture me growing up in the black church and like at the worship services, anyone might just break into song and they sing this song. And it, the lyrics are, this may be the last time. This may be the last time. This may be the last time. I don't know. And we would just sing this over and over again. And you're thinking, oh, shit, this is kind of negative. This is like, this may be the last time. What? Is someone maybe going to die? Or but it was sung in a way that was still somehow hopeful and celebratory. So anyway, I'll sing So it. sing it. Sing a line. Okay, so it goes something <laughs> like this. And by the way, it was a cappella, And anyone would break out and say something like this. This may be the last time. This may be the last time. Uh, this may be the last time. It may be the last time. I don't know. I say uh, this may be the last time. This may be the last time. Uh, this may be the last time. It may be. Last time, I don't know, and then it would go on and on. Oh, hey, I love it. There you have it. I love that. I think that's a beautiful ending. Yep. Hopefully, not the last time. No, I know. I hope it's not, but hey, you never know. But it may. <laughs> oh, thank you, Misha. Thank you, Misha. Thank you guys, love you both. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are available on Instagram and Twitter for debate and hate mail. Please share us with your friends and enemies and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay sane.